0: Glad you're here today. Starting a new series. Anybody even know what the Ten Commandments are anymore? Some of us can name a few. J.R.R. Tolkien, who um, wrote The Lord of the Rings Hobbit, uh, was once famously quoted as saying, It is never, ever a good idea to laugh at a dragon. Okay? Probably joins on a list of other really good stuff that is never ever a good idea to do it is it's it's never a good idea to insult your waiter before he brings you your food <laughs> it is never a good idea to poke someone in the chest during an argument it is never a good idea to go streaking it's just never a good idea never a good idea to get a face big face tattoo it is just never a good idea to to participate in drunk Facebooking. It is never a good idea to tell a woman to calm down. (laughs) So there are likewise some things that are always good. They're always a good idea. They're always true. God, our maker, set some things up for us as human beings. Some things that are designed to be absolutes for human behavior and human functionality. Things that it doesn't matter what the culture is, what the society is, what the environment is. Every culture has got them. They are, there are things that ha, are, have been considered wrong in every society that has been studied. To kill someone on your own volition is almost... in universally just understood in cultures to be that, that which is wrong to take the, something that belongs to someone else and you is considered to be inappropriate it's wrong to sleep with another person's spouse is generally and universally considered not a good idea it's intrinsic it is it's it's embedded in the human psyche it's it's understood to be kind of etched in our hearts The New Testament actually says, even Gentiles, people who do not know God's written law, show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written, see that, it's written in their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. And so God has has given us a set of human Absolute. So he says, this is how you're designed. This is always going to be right. This is always going to be proper. And it's a never a good idea to do certain kinds of things. And so we call this set of things that are part of the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, we call them the Ten Commandments. And you probably have an association. If I ask you to say, complete the sentence, the Ten Commandments are... Of a phrase or something that you could think of that comes to mind. For some of us, they would say, well, they are the rules of religion. Some of us would say, well, those are the, the basic requirements to please God or maybe to appease God, to be, to be a good person. We might say, well, the Ten Commandments are the, a, a historical moral code for societal law. The, the commandments that God gave are perhaps more than that. Because when God gave them, it, didn't ma- it doesn't matter whether you know God personally yet, whether you believe in God or not. It doesn't matter what society you're in, what era you're in, what generation, how old or young you are. These things are given as absolute, unchanging essentials for human wellness for health, for optimal functionality. They are like the owner's manual that says, look, I made this thing. Here's something you got to know. When you get your iPhone and you take it out of the package, do not submerge it in the toilet. Okay? It's just universally not a good idea. You want it to function optimally. There are certain things you do and there are certain things you don't do. And so they are... They are always true and they are always right regardless of the era or the creed that you follow or the setting. Every civilization has kind of reflected some of these things. They're true now and they're true always. They're constant. And so I wanted to invite you to take a look this summer at these things. We're going to camp for the next 10 weeks in Exodus chapter 20. If you have a Bible or a way to access one, I invite you to go to Exodus chapter 20. And if you don't... You got one of these in your program. In fact, I want to tell you something about this. So here's I want. We're, we're just going to set up shopping in Exodus 20 where God, on, the, on Mount Sinai, delivered to Moses as the receptor. Here are the commandments. Here are the, here's the basic starting point for human functionality. And we gave this to you because I want to really strongly urge you to do this. I want to encourage you to take this out and set it somewhere on your kitchen table or somewhere at your dining room table. And as a family... As much as you can, as much as you're together in the summer, I want to encourage you, when you eat together, read this. Just read it. And see if, as a family, you can memorize it. These 17 verses. It's not hard if you take the whole summer and the ones that are the commandment parts we've boldened for you, but the entirety of that, I would urge you, and can I just say to the dads or the leaders of the households here today, take the lead on this. Embed this in your family Watch what it does within you just to refresh and remind ourselves all along. Here's the basics of the owner's manual. If here's what God says is always right, always good, always true to follow. I encourage you to do that and stick that there. And Exodus 20, there's a historical context going on here. This is post-emancipation from Egypt. The people of Israel have been rescued by God and they've been taken from slavery, 400 years of slavery under Egyptian rule and they've, been, and they've been delivered and all the plagues and everything that happened and let my people go When Moses being raised up and delivering the people, they've crossed the Red Sea that parted for them, they're being led by, uh, by uh, signs of God, uh, a pillar of, of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, they've been protected, they've been cared for and this is about two months later. After all, after that deliverance has happened and they're in the desert they are in this wilderness area God is providing for them and they're waiting Moses says come with me and we're going to wait for the God who delivered us to talk to us that moment comes God summons Moses onto a, a, a Mount Sinai and all the people are gathered below and camped waiting for him in kind of a tent city he goes up and God says now here we go Exodus 20 verse 1 and God spoke all these words here's what he says I am Yahweh your God, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Before we even get to the next verse, we don't. Please do not miss what he just said. Something very important has, been, has just been said. I am Yahweh or Jehovah. If you've, that's the same, come from the same acrostic in the Hebrew, it, it means the one who is. I am who I am. When God identified, He's saying. There are a lot of claims to God. There is one. I am him. I'm the one. Call me the one who is. He says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the hand of slavery. Something important has already been established. Before God ever gives these instructions to human beings, he says, the context for that doing is, I have established something that I have been your rescuer. I have established you. You are my people. We belong together. You have been re- rescued by me. You have been redeemed by me. And because you know me, because I am your God, there are some things that are going to want to be true of you. It is because they are chosen and restored that they're given these commands. Listen, not as a means to get restored. The purpose of the law that God gave, including these commands, was not do these things so that I'll see if you're acceptable or not. He says, I have already taken the initiative. I've done everything to rescue you. You are my people. I am your God. And on the basis of that, because you've been restored, here's the way to live. Deuteronomy 4 says, says this. It says, God God, this is the second time when God repeats the law after they break the Moses breaks them because of idolatry and all kinds of going things going sideways and haywire God reinstitutes it and he says right before he gives them these commands again he says has any God ever tried to take uh, for himself one nation out of another by testings by miraculous signs and wonders by war by a mighty hand and outstretched arm he's reminding them what he did for them Or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes, you were shown these things. Look, you were shown these things so that you might know that Yahweh, the Lord, is God. And besides him, there is no other. It is because you have been restored, because you know me, I'm giving you these instructions for how to best function. So the law will serve as a repeating reminder and what he gives here and what he gives all throughout the Mosaic Law of, of people's dependent position, the fact that they have been rescued already by God by no accomplishment of their own and that the provision of his love and his grace and his goodness is where they need to keep coming back. That's what restores them and sustains them. So adherence hear this, adherence to these laws. A whole lot of people in our world say, are you going to heaven? Are you forgiven for your sins? Are things right with God? Well, yeah, sure. Well, how do you know? Well, I keep the commandment stuff. First of all, no, you don't. Secondly, that's not why it exists. It emerges out of a rightly connected position, not as a means to enter into it. When, when a college student who's going to go play football at a at a major university and they do the televising. he's got the three hats and he decides and they've offered him a scholarship he's going to decide which one he's going to be and he signs he signed the letter and he's accepted the provision he has been accepted by the school he's being given the gift of a scholarship and then he puts the hat on of the school that he's chosen he does not put the hat on in order to get the school to accept him He puts the hat on as a distinguishing feature that says, I have already been accepted by this school. No, not working for you. Okay, how about this one? I don't go out on dates with people who aren't, women who aren't my wife. I don't do that. I don't date anybody else. I go out with my wife. I don't say no to the others so that my wife will love me. I say no to the others because I am loved by my wife. I do it in response to that. I was talking to the folks back here. I asked my wife yesterday, do you have anything you want to do on Memorial Day? She goes, yes, we're going bike riding. Didn't get to do it on Mother's Day. We're going bike riding. She didn't say, I'd like to go bike riding. She says, we're going bike riding. It's going to be a long bike ride, she says. And we have this little thing in our family. Is this, I didn't ask your permission. Is it okay to tell us? Sorry. We're stuck now. I use all. I, this is just common to me. I'm sorry. I love you. You love me? Okay. <laughs> My wife loves to be in nature. She likes taking long walks. We've talked about this. I, she loves taking walks. She loves walking around the river and ponds, and she loves being at the ocean. And she loves, and then she likes going on bike rides. And I go, why? Why are we doing this? It's like there, but there are birds and there's flowers and there's and there's trees and There's water. And I go, I've seen them. I know them. I don't have to see it a hundred times to know why. And and we finally realized she is about the journey. And I'm about the destination. And we finally found a compromise. Okay, we'll go for the walk. or We'll go for the bike ride. And let's stop for ice cream. (laughs) Stop for ice cream and I'm good. I'm going to go on a bike ride tomorrow but I'm not going on a bike ride to get my wife to love me. I'm going on a bike ride because she already loves me. And because as a result of her loving me and being in this relationship, my natural response is to say, I want to be with you. I want to do what you want. Helping? No, okay. So God has established these commandments emerge out of a rightly connected position, not in order to achieve it. And they are especially to be true for those who have been restored now nobody as we saw in romans 2 nobody's off the hook on these things people who do, if you if you're here and you say i don't even know if there's a God. i don't care if there's a God. i don't answer him you're not off the hook god still says you're accountable as a human being who's been created this is etched and embedded in your heart there are things that are going to be absolutely true and your conscience is going to know whether you want to admit it or not you're still responsible for these things. But if you have a personal relationship with that God, and for those of us in the room who've crossed the line of faith and said to Jesus Christ, I believe in you, I need you. I want you to be in my life, to be the savior of my life. For those of us who have done that, and for those of you who are on the verge of doing that or moving toward doing that, these things will be true, especially should be true of those who have been restored because we know the one who wrote them. We know the one who gave them and why so god starts with the very first thing and we're just going to look we're going to look at one commandment a week and we're going to the rest of the time pretty much going to be in Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 here it is you shall have no other gods before me worship god don't worship anything else or anyone else no other gods before me now these people had had been in an environment and we're still in, going into an environment where they're surrounded by polytheism And there was an understanding that there were powers at work, regional gods, specialized gods. There were gods of war and gods of fertility and and gods of the crops and gods of the different elements. And you could appeal to each of those gods and there were little relics and things set up. In fact, it is understood that the ten plagues that God gave to Egypt when he he was going to rescue his people, most, most, if not all, of those plagues corresponded to a regional god in Egypt. God's gods of fertility gods of life gods of you know there were the the frog god and so god commands these things to show oh no no those things answer to me because there's only one of me and his very name that he gives himself to moses is i am the one who is you're going to hear him say over and over again in scripture there is no other i am the yahweh i'm the one who is and there is no other Here's here's Isaiah 45, just selected verses from there. I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. He goes on to say, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, surely God is with you, and there is no other. There is no other God. And there is no God apart from me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none but me. This is all in the same chapter. He says, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Why? For I am God. There is no other. Show this by worshiping only me. And we hear the first commandment, we go, whew, all right, one down. Good. Good to go. No problem. We can take a poll in the room here, and mo- almost, the vast majority of us will go, how many gods are there? And we'd all, how many think one? And we could raise our hands up, oh, one God. Okay, we got that one. Let's move on. Hang on a second. Because he says, you shall have no other gods before me. See, it's not, it's not a matter of do you have a Buddha statue in your house. It's not who you name as deity. It's not who you call to be the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which in American culture, the majority of people would say that is the God who is the God. That's not all there is to it. Because he says, you'll have no other gods before me. And what's before me means something that's placed above him in terms of worship. So I'm still good. When we sang, I sang to only one person. His son, Jesus, but I sang, you know, it's all one God. I sang to that one. I got that one right. What qualifies as a God? What qualifies as a small g God? What do we worship? The word worship actually comes from a derivative that means that to which we give the highest degree of worth in our lives. That which... We assign the highest value. And it's long been said that everybody is always worshiping something, not just on Sunday morning when you're singing a song. You're always worshiping something. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, A person will worship something, have no doubt about it. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Everyone worships something. By virtue of you being created in the image of God, you have volition. You have the the ability to discern and decide what's important and what's not important to you. You have a a will and a choice to decide. Everyone And everyone has something at the top of the list, that which trumps everything else around it in terms of what it controls, their actions and their thoughts. That which has the final word on what you decide, where you're going to go, what you're going to do. That influence that makes you decide what your schedule is, what your most... Maybe it's your most your important possession, or maybe your most important pursuit, or the most important experience you like to have. What you most believe that you need or want to be fulfilled, or happy, or to have an identity. But somebody says, "Well, but again, I don't I don't believe in God, so therefore I don't worship I don't worship anything because there is no de- deity. We're all it's I'm a humanist and and." I believe it all just kind of is coming and going, and there's nothing, no rhyme or reason to it. I don't worship anything. Oh, no, you do. This is the words of David Foster Wallace, who's a postmodern American novelist, who took his own life at the age of 46, uh, and uh, kind of a writer and essayist. This is not a guy who claimed to know the God of the Bible, but listen to what he says. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life. Okay, do you live there? All right, Listen. There is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty, and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start slowing, or showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever, ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. You'll end up feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Whatever occupies the place of tiebreaker in your life. That which is has the greatest value. As, as created human beings, we are assigning worth to it, ultimate worth, and that means we are worshiping it. Everyone has an actual God or set of gods because everyone has something that supersedes all others in how we make our final decisions. Find that in your life. Honestly assess what that is that you've given the highest worth to and you have found your God or your gods. Yahweh, the one who is, says to his people, I've just displayed something to you in Egypt. I've just shown you that I am the source of deliverance, that I'm the source of life, that I'm the one who, from whom everything you need comes from. I am the one who 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 has the highest worth in all of heaven and earth. And that role, that place of what you give highest worth to is reserved exclusively for me, God says. I break all the ties. Now, these people were surrounded and will be surrounded by rival gods. Some of them we think are little statues, some of them we think have little have temples. But they had rival gods. And the fact is that every culture and every society, including this one and including my life and your life, have rival gods. That which presents itself is waiting and vying for to be the highest controller in your life. That which promises the highest quality of life, the greatest satisfaction. That's what That which gets your needle to move toward feeling good or being good or having purpose in your life. The Bible has several of these. I'm just going to mention these quick. That it actually says, these are rival gods to us. And none of these are are deities with sculptures that you put in a temple somewhere. The one that Jesus said, first and foremost, he said, the rival God in your life is money and your possessions. That is a rival. That is something that vies to be the God of your life. Jesus said this, no one can serve two masters. Either will hate the one and love the other, or will he be devoted to the one, and despise the other, and then he juxtaposes two things, and he has the one true God over here, he says you can't serve this God, you can't have him be the one that you worship, and also have that position occupied by, and of all the things he could choose, choose all of the options, he doesn't choose Baal, he doesn't choose the devil, he doesn't choose any of the, the, any of the deities in the temples, he says you can't serve that God, and serve money, Twice in the New Testament it says something like this. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And here's this list. Sexual immorality, immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. And then this one. And greed, which has to do with possessions and what money can buy. Which is equals idolatry. Twice the New Testament puts that word there. We could say more, but sometimes it's money and possession. Sometimes our rival God is a sensation, a feeling, a pleasure, a titillation. It could be sexual in nature, it can be produced by substances, it can be produced by rush type of experience. It's based on a feeling. I, I want and need to feel a certain level of either exhilaration or safety or, or pleasantness. I need to feel something, and, and I will do what it takes to feel that. When that is made our first and final pursuit, God says that's a rival God in our lives. Titus three three says, at one time we were foolish and disobedient. We were deceived and then enslaved. Okay, this means something was made the master, just like the word Jesus used. Cancer two masters. Something becomes the master in life. And we were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. There's certain sensations, feelings that we will... Make our chief pursuit sometimes it's position it's a position of being respected, a position of being in control, a position of being honored or a, a, a position of belonging or being part of something of having security there and sometimes a rival God is our own independence, our own will, our own self. there are a whole lot of people, some of which you may be part of who have taken the, the American culture that says don't let anybody tell you what to do. You can be anything you want, and we have and we've said that's it. That's what I'm holding on to. I'm going to believe. You ever hear this? Believe in yourself. You're you're the you're the captain of your own ship. You're the master of your own domain. You're the one. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. And so our own sense of and there are a whole lot of people who come and go into churches and 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 kind of intersect with Jesus a little bit and they go well you know what I, I started to get uncomfortable because I like Jesus and all good guy be nice to each other and, and everybody love and that's all good but then he started to tell me what to do and i'm not having anybody tell me what to do i started to feel here's the word i started to feel judged that's what we that's the phrase we use i started to feel judged because well you were trying to you made me feel me feel uncomfortable like like, I'm not, I, don't, I, don't, I can't call my own shots. And so our own, own sense of autonomy, autonomy and independence comes in, a sense of sovereignty. And so practically, you get to Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me, is referring to anything that fills the slot, the role that says that is the determining factor on what I choose to think and feel and do. That which I choose to pursue. Practically, other gods can easily be not so much statues and deities. They can easily be a person in our life. A certain relationship that we say is so important to me that nothing is going to get in the way of that. Can I tell you, I've seen this happen to men who come into contact with... I've seen, seen, I think, the enemy derail people men on a path toward understanding who God made them to be, understanding what it means to be a follower of the, of the true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And their, and their wife and their relationship with their wife and their marriage puts the brakes on that and says, I'm uncomfortable with this. I don't want this. And, it, and that guy decides, my marriage is more important to me than my God. It gets a little squirrely when we start talking about people who are decent people or relationship. There are some of us who have made our children our God. We have to do what makes them happy. We have to go on. We have to join that traveling team and go to that every weekend of the year, and we have to be gone all the time and spend all the money because our children, they enjoy it. It's, it makes them happy, and we should do that, and it interrupts the path of pursuing God. You go, oh, now, wait a minute. Now you're starting to get legalistic. Whoa, whoa, hang on a second. Well, you, uh, let him say it. No other gods before me. For some of us, it's a standard of living. So there's a certain job we must do or must take, a place we can't... There's some, Sometimes it's a particular practice that is such a good experience. And, and look, these things are not immoral by themselves. That's what makes it so difficult here. They can be really, really good things. Our families, our marriages, our children, our jobs are a good thing. But that particular experience says, well, you know what? I can't miss that. I can't not have that. For some, it's, a, it's our career path or a plan or an opportunity. For some, it's a certain kind of consumable. And we say, don't. I'm not giving that up because of what that does in my life. Listen, whatever, everything else in your life has to work around The schedule has to work around it. The finances have to work around it. The focus, the priority has to work around it. Whatever, everything else has to work around is a rival God. And God says, because I have given you freedom, because I have given you eternal life, because I am your God, worship only me. Give highest worth. That place is reserved to only me no other gods means God says I don't share number 1 position. I got to be the shot caller. I got to be the schedule maker. I got to be the priority setter. There's a fairly common occurrence that happens with people coming in and out of churches. And Again, coming to church is not is not the same as having a relationship with God and following God. It can be a it's a key a component of what he gives as resources, but but I've seen people, and this countless times, people who come in and go, there's something stirring them. This may be happening for some of you. You may be here today because you say, I just, I feel like something's missing. I feel like I need God in my life. I haven't been functioning with God in my life. And you say, where can I find Him? Well, I go where they're talking about Him. I go where His Word is. Okay, I'm, and people who show up and say, I, I think I need and want God in my life. I want, and I what we mean by that is, there's some holes that He can fill. There's a sense of fulfillment that I want him to have in my life. And that happens so often that that we get so completely caught off guard when he says, no, I'm not filling the holes. Oh, I'll fill the hole, but that's not what I made you for. I want to be the one who has the greatest worth in your life. I want to be the decision maker. I want to break the tie. And when somebody says, well, wait a minute, I'm not shift in that part of my life because he says so i'm not adjusting that to comply with him it's so funny that um in first john chapter five this is the end of the epistle the, the letter that that john writes and he says this about god and his son he says we know also that the son of god has come and he's given us understanding so that we know him who is true okay got that so Jesus has come, and he has revealed who the real God is. He, he has told us what is true, that there is one God, and we need to be restored to him. Okay, he's done that. And we are in him who is true, even his son, Jesus Christ. He is, again, the word true. He is the true God and, and eternal life. He finishes up, but he has this one little sentence right at the end, at the end of this order. Why would he do this? He has this little, little sentence. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols, And that's it. He's done writing. There's an understanding there that there are rivals to what is above that paragraph in our lives. There are those things which will challenge that thinking in our lives. i got a simple question for you and for me today. Who or what is Yahweh's chief rival in your life? I'm not trying trying to guilt you. I just want to ask you to identify this because this is one of the when we say, "How do you keep the first commandment?" The way you keep the first commandment starts with identifying and inventorying what the rivals are to this true God. What or who is his chief rival in your life right now? Can I give you a little suggestion about this? If you're getting close, it'll start making you feel really uncomfortable. You'll start feeling kind of defensive. Kind of like, I thought I want to feel good. It's Memorial Day. We're gonna go picnic. Don't come on, let me make this nice. You'll get you're starting to get close if you start to feel that. And there is a battle going on all the time in my life and in your life. It's we don't settle this once for all. It's constant choices going on. What do we do with that rival? So, how do you obey the first commandment? How do you put it into practice? You shall have no other gods before me. First, it requires deep level honesty where we inventory and we identify. Can I challenge, can I, can I dare you to pray a prayer? Pray this prayer. Say it with an open heart and say, God, would you expose for me what tends to be your chiefest rival in control of my life? Pray it. You can do that right now where you sit. I will warn you. You pray it and watch what happens. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'll let God's Spirit kind of gently nudge you about that. But pray it and see what happens. The thing that I say I don't care what God says, I don't care what anybody else says. I'm not changing that. I'm not paying that. I'm not giving up that. I'm not adjusting that for him you inventory it, and you identify it. and then the second thing is you dethrone it now in the old testament this was really simple because they had these weird creatures that were made out of stone and made out of wood and they were set up in pedestals and they had the high places and they had little temple places and kind of like picnic areas where you could go and you could pray to a certain god and it was real simple it goes well that's obvious what that rival god is and you know what god always told people to do go burn them down burn them down Knock them off. Break them. Okay, but you can't do that if your God is your job, can you? You can't do that as easily if your God is your spouse or your children or your television. I suppose you could do that with that. So so it's not necessarily destroy the rival God, it's dethrone the rival God. Take conscious, practical steps to say, I'm going to... Move this down the notches so that it is no longer the controlling factor over who God is. I'm going to displace its authority and its position in my life. And then, very, very simple, is to go directly to the God who is and to reinstall him, to declare it to him, to submit our will to him and say, I may have drifted, I'm sure I have. I have other things that are rivals to you, but I'm going to declare again, I'm going to restate that you have the highest place, the first place in my life. Everything else falls in line behind you. If you give me your instructions on how I'm to live and what is to be important, then it will supersede everything else, even the good stuff of my life. Are you ready to say to Yahweh, the God who is, everything falls in line behind you? Today, that's two prayers that I'm going to ask you to do. One is to ask God, show me what your rivals are. And the second is to go at Him to say, I am reinstalling you as the head. I'm reinstalling you as the one who has most worth. Everything else in my life falls in line behind you. Here we go. First commandment. Pray with me. In whatever way you are bringing things to our mind, I want to ask you, just invite you to have your way in our hearts and mind too. To recognize that you're not saying this because you want to kill our fun or you want to control us. It's because you know that our life, that everything else poisons the pool if it's given first place except for you. So even now in this room, God, there are people who may be wrestling with this. And we're asking together that you would present yourself in our lives so that we would say everything else falls in line behind you. And If there's something right now that is a chief rival, dethrone it in us. Give us the wisdom and the insight to see what it is and to see how we can dethrone it so we can declare again fully, completely to a God who already loves us and accepts us. You are my God. You're in first place. There's no other God above you. Make that true. Amen.